0: Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be, and welcome to episode 27 of Two Minutes 59, Lake County, Illinois' favorite, if not only, Clash podcast or Clash theme podcast. I gotta clarify because we don't always talk about the Clash in every episode, but we certainly talk about issues relating to the Clash or inspired by the Clash. Today, however. Um, I think we'll focus more on on the band, and uh, and I'll get to that in a moment. My name is David Von Ebers. I'm your host. I typically record this on a weekly basis. It happens to be Friday, the 1st of September, as I'm uh, working on this week's episode. And I saw on uh, Twitter and other places that this week marks the 55th anniversary of the Uh, I don't know if anniversary is really the right term, but 55 years ago this week, the city of Chicago hosted the Democratic National Convention. And if you're familiar at all with uh, that time period in our history, and you may very well know that was a controversial and traumatic uh, event capped off by uh, what um, later became known as a police riot in the Grant Park area of downtown Chicago. Police riot, meaning the police effectively started the riot by pretending to be protesters uh, and kicking off the violence, and then that led to actual violence between the police and the National Guard on the one hand and uh, mostly student protesters or young protesters on the other. It also uh, marked um, a real defining moment, and this is going to relate to what we're going to talk about today, but it was a real defining moment for the Democratic Party in the United States. Uh, there, it had splintered already into factions with a sort of a more traditional populist faction, uh, you know, that still in many places supported segregation, it wasn't particularly open to integration and things like that and that also uh, supported the, um, the JFK slash LBJ led war in Vietnam. There was another uh, side, a growing uh, part of the party or a growing part of the left, I suppose you could say, that opposed the Vietnam War and supported the civil rights movement. And that, uh, that dividing line in a sense kind of splintered the Democratic Party and going forward, the more left-leaning part of the party basically took over and and the pro-civil rights and anti-Vietnam War aspect of the party or portion of the party or however you want to um, phrase it, largely took over. And so that is kind of what I want to talk about a little bit about today. Not the Democratic Party and not politics, but Vietnam in particular um, and, you know, uh, how the Vietnam War both impacted the American political scene, but also impacted the clash, and impacted the clash quite a bit. And we'll talk about that um, as we go forward. And in particular, we'll talk about uh, two tracks, one off of the Santa Denisa record, um, which is Charlie Don't Surf, and the other, uh, Straight to Hell, off of, the, off, off of Combat Rock, Combat Rock, the last uh, f- uh, studio album of the original lineup of the Clash. In any event, um, but we'll get to that in a minute. Before I get to the Clash related, um, or the Clash slash Vietnam related part of it, I, I want to talk, just kind of reflect back a little bit on that year, 1968, because 1968 is really like, you know, the first year that I can kind of remember things happening. Before 1968, you know, I might have some sort of vague uh, kind of shadowy memories of when we got a puppy or, you know, things that happened around the holidays or that kind of thing, but not real distinct memories. But 1968, partially because there was a lot of trauma that occurred in 1968, uh, you know, I, I have some fairly distinct memories of. I remember, for example, and I think I mentioned this in an earlier episode, I remember the day of the King assassination. I remember uh, a whole bunch of events surrounding the King assassination in in April of that year. I was only in kindergarten at the time, hadn't yet turned six years old, but I I remember kind of hushed conversations in our house and I remember, you know, uh, not long after that, there was sort of an uprising on the west side of the city of Chicago. I remember, you know, I was aware of Vietnam and so i had this kind of sense of that, that there was a war going on that that my older brothers could get drafted that my sisters and brothers friends could get drafted kids in the neighborhood could get drafted you know i remember just walking around the neighborhood and you'd see blue star flags in people's windows and occasionally you'd see a, a gold star flag in somebody's window meaning that that a family member had died overseas, right? So Vietnam was the sort of constant presence in our life in that year. And of course, I couldn't tell you how, whether or not I was distinctly aware of it at the time because all of these memories kind of blur, but of course, you know, that was also the year that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated around the time of the California primary. He had a legitimate shot at um, becoming the Democratic nominee and you know, when I was mentioning earlier this schism, so to speak, in within the Democratic Party, I mean, he, um, he really sort of embraced the left wing, the part of the party, um, the you know, the, the pro-civil rights and anti-Vietnam war part of the party, and yet had this family name that that people, of course would have associated with, the old-timey Democrats, the, the the New Deal Democrats, the pro-union Democrats, and all that. Um, and so, who knows if he had been the nominee, would he have defeated Richard Nixon? Would the United States have taken a very different course in Vietnam after that? You know, would would the um, enforcement of civil rights legislation have kind of picked up and, and accelerated? It had Bobby Kennedy? Uh, become president in 1968. There's a lot of fascinating speculation, but of course, you know, his assassination um, in some ways probably inspired even more intense protests at the Democratic Convention. And as I mentioned, that happened in Chicago. Chicago was a host city. I was keenly aware of it. We were aware of the unrest that was going on there. It was on the news and, you know, everyone was talking about it. Um, My siblings had friends from high school and college who went to to protest uh and so forth and so this was really kind of front of mind for us um in my family (coughs) pardon me with with brothers who were draft age um and uh you know again my siblings all of their their friends were in that my brothers and sisters friends were in that age group there were kids in the neighborhood so we were kind of you know it had this enormous impact on our day-to-day lives and it had a, a lasting impact you know um If you don't know, back in those days, the news media certainly covered warfare in more graphic ways than they tend to now. You know, you might have seen, and if you're around my age, you undoubtedly did see that famous cover of, I think it was Time Magazine, of the young girl in Vietnam running down the roadway, and her clothes had been burned off from a napalm fire. And, uh, you know, that was, it's an incredibly shocking image and a a horrifying image, but that was on the cover of a major weekly news magazine, and and I remember being in elementary school, and and that magazine was in our, you know, in our school library, Um, and so we were all keenly aware of it. I think, you know, if you were someone like me who had older siblings who literally could have been drafted, then you were probably even more uh, keenly aware of it than other kids. But I think everybody everybody knew about it and was aware of it. And the, the news coverage, as I say, was more graphic and more intense then uh, than what we saw with, you know, any war since that time. I mean, it, you know, I don't want to go off on this tangent, but if I remember correctly, when under the Reagan administration they decided to invade Grenada, they kind of stuck a, struck a deal with news organizations that they would be able to embed reporters with the forces going into Grenada, but they had to kind of, I'm just going to say, soft-pedal the news a little bit. And it seems like since the invasion of Grenada through wars that followed, at least the American news media, has really soft-pedaled war. And, and the actual harsh reality of it, but that was not the case during Vietnam. And you know, as a young kid, it left quite an impression. So let's switch now to the to the Clash. Uh, it seems to me, you know, obviously uh, uh, Joe Strummer was older than I I was. He's ten years older than me. So if I was you know six in in 1968, he would or turning six, I should say, he was turning sixteen. Uh, even though he was in the UK, um, things that happen in America certainly get um, news coverage in the UK. In fact, kind of funny, I had talked some time ago about the song I'm So Bored with the UK, which is, I'm so bored with the USA, rather, which is on the American version of the Clash's debut album. Even in that song, um, which is about you know the fact that everything about American culture is kind of beaten over everybody's heads, even in Europe and other parts of the world. But in that song, he even seems to refer to Vietnam because he says, uh, I, if I, if I, I'll just do this from memory, I may not get the lyrics 100% right, but it's something along the lines of Yankee soldier, he wanna shoot some skag, he met it in Cambodia, and now he can't afford a, can't afford a bag or something like that. So, you know, that's he mentions Cambodia, not Vietnam. But here's the interesting thing in terms of of the timing of that song. It seems to me when he wrote that song, um, the lyrics to that song, it was before the fall of Pol Pot in Cambodia. It was before Vietnam invaded uh, Cambodia to, to depose Pol Pot because of the horrors that Pol Pot inflicted on his own people, the genocide that he inflicted on the Cambodian people. Um, it was, and then of course also it was before the United States kind of surreptitiously uh, supported Pol Pot in exile as he tried to take the country back. That all occurred during the Reagan years, although there may have been a little bit of uh, movement in that direction when Carter was president. But in any event, my point is when, when Joe wrote the lyrics to I'm so bored with the USA, I believe what he's referring to there when he refers to Cambodia is not what happened later when the United States was supporting Pol Pot, but I think he's referring to the fact that the U.S. actually, you know, expanded the Vietnam War into neighboring countries like uh, Cambodia and Laos. And you know, this was always kind of a shadowy thing. We know now that there were that the United States heavily bombed Cambodia. Um, I mean, we knew at the time it was going on, but but it's not. It's it's less clear. How many U.S. troops may have crossed the border into C- Cambodia, but in any event, I think, in the song, when he's referring to, he met it in Cambodia, he's talking about during the Vietnam War. So even, you know, even uh, one of their first songs is, you know, he's already mentioning uh, that conflict. Um, and, and the fact that people in the U.K. were aware of this uh, is, is in and of itself, you know, it just kind of shows the impact that that war had. But anyway, so the Vietnam War comes up in a number of instances and in a number of songs that they wrote. But the ones that kind of jump out at me are uh, "Charlie Don't Surf," as I mentioned, which is on uh, the Sandinista record, and then "Straight to Hell" off of Combat Rock. And the straight it, "Straight to Hell" is one of my absolute favorite Clash songs. I got to tell you. But you know, I had talked on past episodes about how i'm trying to get back into guitar playing right and and i'm going to try to pick up a new uh clash song um every week so i did that i actually tried to i downloaded the, lyri- the lyrics into the chords of these two songs and i started messing around with them and that's an interesting topic in its own right because um because they've <laughs> they've got some uh some cure both songs you know Again, I got—I got—I know I'm jumping all over the place, but I got to go back to what I talked about a few weeks ago about Mick Jones. I mean, the guy could write a tune. You know, both songs have great uh, great uh, sound, and they're both kind of um, subdued, frankly, for the Clash. When you think about the—the the, you know the, the punk side of the Clash and the kind of the hard rock side of the Clash, and then you listen to these songs. Um, they're very, very low key but they also have they have, they have fabulous chords in them and they're fairly simple. Uh, Charlie Don't Surf, the version that I found is basically just D B minor seven which is a very cool kind of eerie ethereal sounding chord and then E, e minor seven which is also very cool. Uh, so it, it's really like just those three chords, oh and also F sharp major. I'm sorry F sharp minor. Uh, by the way, my favorite chord, I have to say you find F sharp minor in a lot of um, R&B songs Um, you find it paired a lot of times with B or B flat, you find it paired a lot of times with B minor Um, and it's a very soulful kind of uh, sound but in this, in Charlie Don't Surf, it's got this kind of cool almost ethereal uh, sound to it, and of course getting back to the Song itself, rather than the the, the chords, the guitar chords. Um, the song, of course, the title comes from the movie Apocalypse Now, and in the um, the Martin Popoff book that I refer to frequently, the Clash, all the albums, all the songs. He says, I guess, which is sort of the obvious, is he says that you know the title of the of the song comes from the the movie apocalypse now and he talks about how joe strummer said that that movie really had a heavy influence on him and i'm sure that's true but i would point out again that i think that you know vietnam and the impact of vietnam um and the way it influenced the world really has a lot to you know i shouldn't say a lot to do with their songwriting but but it certainly impacted their songwriting a lot over the years and um, you know he took that line again you know the way Martin Popoff describes it I think it's consistent with the way I've always viewed the lyrics of the song um, talking about again you know the effects of imperialism and, and exploitation um, really by you know by all Western countries um, in a lot of ways, but certainly this is focusing specifically on the U.S. <coughs> and, and Vietnam. Um, but, you know, the, some of the lyrics are really wild. Like he says, uh, one of the first verses after, you know, that introduces with the chorus Charlie Don't Surf, but we think he should. It goes, everybody wants to rule the world, must be something we get from birth. One truth is we never learn satellites will make uh, space burn. We've been told to keep the strangers out. We don't like them starting to hang around. We don't like them all over town. Across the world, we're gonna blow them down. Um, you know, so it's it's this, uh, it, it captures this kind of sense of xenophobia um, that really kind of, um, I think motivated uh, or motivates a lot of, of what's going on in the world today and what what was going on in the world back then, This sense of, you know, we don't want people uh, who are different from us, but we've certainly gone out of our way to exploit them and exploit their, um, exploit their countries. Um, so, you know, th- I, I think that's sort of an overarching message of a lot of their songs, Washington Bullets, obviously, also from Sandinista is on that, um, on, on that same theme. Although, just as, aside, as an aside, the interesting thing about Washington Bullets is, first of all, it's, it's focused on Latin America, not on Vietnam, but also the one of the main points of um, that song is that when the United States elected not to get involved in the affairs of Nicaragua, the revolution was ultimately successful. And so, uh, you know, it, it's a little bit different story about American involvement, or in that case, America stepping back and and letting a revolution take place. Uh, Obviously, that's why they named the album Sandinista, but a little bit different perspective. But Charlie Don't Surf, I think, goes back to the whole concept of imperialism and exploitation. Um, And even, you know, even this concept going back to I'm So Bored With the USA, surfing you know is something that people perceive to be even though it's kind of a polynesian thing it became popularized as an american thing and so charlie don't surf but we think he should is another kind of like like the like the narrator in a sense of the song is kind of saying we should push american culture on these people in this other part of the world and that again is kind of what the line refers to in in the movie Apocalypse Now. But anyway, so moving from that to Straight to Hell, again, one of my favorite songs, and I I can I can still recall the first time I actually heard the song, I didn't hear it on the album, because I didn't own the album yet, and you know uh, neither did any of my college roommates yet, and that, that was always the key thing is you know if I didn't have an album one of my college roommates had it, and that's how I usually heard new music, but I heard straight to hell the first time when they played it live on Saturday Night Live um, and was totally blown away by the live performance um, which actually if I remember correctly was pretty true to the studio version and we did have a radio station here in Chicago that played it from time to time so it did actually make it on on the air I think that um, whereas Charlie don't don't surface maybe more of a high excuse me kind of a high level view of imperialism and the pushback the reaction against imperialism. I think that uh, straight to hell tries to tell a more personal kind of story. Although the lyrics are abstract and and sort of you know poetic I guess you could say I mean they're they're more metaphor than than um, directly making a point, they're more metaphorical, but, but it's more of a personal story. And it, it, clearly it's a story about, you know, uh, uh, children being left behind in Vietnam whose fathers were American G.I.s and whose mothers were Vietnamese, uh, uh, indigenous Vietnamese people. And that, you know, the abandonment of the child in that song is, I think, you know, a pretty clear metaphor for what imperialism has always been, right? Like, you know, we came into Vietnam, we took what we wanted, and we left the people behind. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, that's not what the Vietnam War was about. The Vietnam War was about fighting communism or whatever. But that's that's only looking at it from an American perspective, and only from an American perspective, maybe beginning in the middle of the of the decade the middle of the 1960s the actual war of course began as a French colonial war a decade or so earlier where the, the French were a colonial power that had basically taken over uh, Vietnam and exploited it and then of course you know the, the there was a revolution to, to get rid of the French uh, to throw off the manacles of, of French, you know colonialism, that led to a peace agreement in what 1956 or something like that. That essentially declared a, a truce, and ultimately the point of the truce was supposed to be that there would be a an election. Well, let me back up a step. Part of the part of the peace agreement was to divide the country into two different countries: North Vietnam, controlled by the communist power, South Viet Vietnam. Um, you know, purportedly anti-communist. I mean, it was an authoritarian government, but we pretended it was a democracy. But in any event, there was supposed to be a national election to unify the country under a single government. And of course, the United States didn't want that to happen. So they went in and prevented it from happening, happening, scuttled the election and effectively kicked off the war, used the, you know, the premise of the gulf of time incident to justify sending the military in Um, but in reality the military had already been there in reality it wasn't so much about um, uh, trying to promote democracy as it was to try to keep the people of vietnam from choosing their own government and it may very well have been that by democratic process they would have chosen a, a communist government but the purpose of our involvement in the 1960s was to prevent uh, the people of Vietnam from choosing their own um, um, government, their own leadership. But of course, I mean, the point is that it all evolved out of French colonial exploitation, you know, European or Western colonial exploitation. So again, this metaphor of, you know, American troops are over there, they, you know, father children and then just leave them behind. Now, I guess guess one thing that occurs to me in thinking that metaphor through is, you know, you got to be a little careful with using that type of metaphor when you're talking about colonialism, because someone might look at that and say, so are you saying that the people of Vietnam are represented in the child, they are childlike and, and not, you know, don't have the agency to make decisions for themselves. I don't think that's what he was getting at at all, but you had to be, you know, if if I were writing a song today about uh, colonial exploitation, about Vietnam or whatever, I would be very careful about that, using that specific metaphor, because I mean, if you go back to, you know, the days of Woodrow Wilson, where he referred to people in Latin America as "quote unquote" our little brown brothers, you know, there's there's always been this sort of patriarchal view that that. A, the West had of, of the um, of the indigenous people in these countries but I don't think that's what Joe Strummer was was talking about I think he was literally just talking about we you know we exploited this country and then we abandoned it we created a war that never had to be and then we just pulled out and left the people who remained to deal with the consequences of, of the war that we started and so I really I, th- I think it's just It's just that, it's not meant to be a sort of a, I said a moment ago, patriarchal, I meant, of course, paternalistic. I don't think it's meant to be a paternalistic metaphor, but, you know, if you're going to write a song today about that situation, um, you want to be a little cautious, I would just say. Anyway, so I did, I picked up the guitar and started fooling around with this song. And I don't know why I have to talk about guitar playing on this show, but that's like I said uh, a week or so ago. I'm really trying to get back into it, you know. So uh, there is not, if you if you if you listen to the song, there does not appear to be a rhythm guitar track. There's it's it's got keyboards, it's got bass and drums, and then there's phenomenal lead guitar part by Mick, which is really cool. This kind of echoey thing that he's got going on, which is fantastic. But you don't really hear. Uh, uh, a rhythm guitar and I don't think interestingly enough I'm trying to remember when I saw them play it on Saturday Night Live I, I think that Joe was playing guitar but I don't think you could really uh, my recollection is you couldn't really hear the part that he was playing but there are chords for it at least somebody figured it out and they're really cool as a matter of fact it's many of my favorite chords it's basically it's the that opening part with a kind of throbbing bass is just a combination of D A and G so when you think of that the um, the way the keyboards uh, change that sort of chord change it, and the guitar it's just D A and G and then D A and G back and forth but then in the verses it's B minor to G B minor to G and then it goes back to D um, and then to G anyway it's it's actually it's very easy to play Although I mean the chords themselves are very easy to play, but the trick on that song I think is just trying to get the rhythm right. And and I have not, and believe me, no one in the world wants me to, I have not attempted to actually sing the lyrics over playing the, the, the chords to it because the it, it, to, it, to my ear the rhythm of the vocal part is actually a bit different than the rhythm of... Um, than the rhythm of the of that kind of that bass line that that the guitar follows. Anyway, so it's an interesting song. If um, if you've never heard it, and I mentioned this before too, when I was talking about the that Joe Strummer um, sort of tribute concert that that was done um, during the pandemic, I say during the pandemic like it's over. Who knows if it's over? Everyone's acting like it is, but you know. I'm not. I'm not convinced that it is, but anyway, put that aside. I know that's a hot topic. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to touch that third rail. But in any event, um, there is one of the one of the, the videos that's part of that tribute is Lucinda Williams doing a cover of Straight to Hell, and and I had forgotten about it until I was talking again about the um, the tribute show on one of the earlier episodes. I think it was last um, last week, but I'd forgotten about it and so i went and looked it up again and holy cow uh, it's such a good song you wouldn't think you know if you if you're familiar with joe strummer's voice and you're familiar with her voice to me it's a little bit difficult to sort of imagine what it would sound like for with her singing that song but it's fantastic it is so good Uh, and she sings it perfectly you know she has a very distinctive voice as did joe and again, they're not at all similar. But she sings it perfectly. Um, she just captures the feeling of it and the sense of it perfectly. And the the guitar player, she you know, she's a good guitar player in her own right. But she just sings this version. She has a guitar player playing, and he's he, he does a really interesting take. He's actually playing different chords than the ones I I just described. But uh, at least the best that I can tell. Um, but he really does an interesting thing. He mostly plays a rhythm track, but he does throw in a little bit of something similar, similar to what Mick was playing on the lead track on the song. Um, but he's playing it on on a Gibson SG, and it's got this kind of, you know, crunchy sound that that, that, um, that guitar has. And it really... Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there. It, it really, it, it's its subtle. It's not in your face, but it's got this real hard kind of rock edge. And the production quality is really cool because it the whole song has this kind of echoey feel to it. So it does, they, they keep that sort of ethereal feel that the Clash achieved with that song, but with this sort of, um, you know, kind of... <laughs> you know, a little crunchy kind of uh, droney guitar underneath it all and it I don't know it's, it's really fabulous um, but it that, that it's got that kind of classic uh, Gibson SG sound uh, anyway it's a great version of it but so those are my that's my rambling conversation about um, the influence of uh, the Vietnam War on the clash there's way more to it than that of course and it's something that will undoubtedly uh, uh, come again. But, um, you know, it's, it's, again, like all things clash-related. It's not at all irrelevant given um, the state of the world today. And uh, so that's certainly something we will revisit again. Any, anyway, thanks very much for listening. If you have any thoughts, please share them in the comment section below. I'll try to get back uh, on top of things next week. And thanks for listening.